0: Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2020 Dublin Festival of History, author and Dublin City Council historian-in-residence Cormac Moore explains how the partition of Ireland in 1920 came about. The questions are asked by Deputy City Librarian Brendan Teeling and the episode was recorded via Zoom on the 3rd of October 2021.
1: Today I'm going to talk to you about... uh 1920 and, and how that uh, kind of shaped the partition of Ireland that happened in uh, May um, you know, the, with the foundation of Northern Ireland in May 1921, the partition of Ireland became a reality. It was in 1920 though that the type of partition Ireland experience was mainly formulated. Throughout 1920 the Government of Ireland Bill, officially partitioning Ireland, was debated in the House of Commons and Lords before being enacted by King George V on 23rd of December. The sectarian violence that engulfed the North from its inception started in the summer of 1920, continuing in waves for much of the following two years. The leading Ulster Unionist, James Craig, also won two major concessions from the British government in September 1920 that gave partition tangible form, even before the Government of Ireland Act became law the establishment of an Ulster special constabulary just for the area that would become Northern Ireland and the appointment of an assistant under-secretary for the same area, Sir Ernest Clarke. The genesis of the Government of Ireland Act 1920 came in the latter half of 1919. Home rule was still on the statute book since 1914 and could no longer be postponed. It was scheduled to come into operation automatically when hostilities were formally concluded with the signature of the last of the peace treaties after the First World War. To stop the Third Home Rule Bill from coming into effect by default, David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, set up a committee chaired by Cabinet Member Walter Long to draft another uh, bill, the Fourth Home Rule Bill, or as it became known, the Government of Ireland Bill. Long was a staunch unionist and rabidly anti sinn Fein. As Republican violence escalated in Ireland, Throughout 1919, it was Long who proposed the hiring of ex servicemen to assist the Royal Irish Constabulary, the RAC, a measure that would be adopted in 1920 with the recruitment of the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries to serve in Ireland. Unsurprisingly, the makeup of Long's committee was unionist in outlook. There was no nationalist representation whatsoever, nor was the advice of any nationalist sought. James Craig and his associates, were the only Irishmen consulted during the drafting of the bill. Long's committee proposed to create two distinct legislators for Ulster and the Southern Provinces, linked by a common council, comprising representatives from both. This was the first time a British government proposed a separate parliament for Ulster, where unionists to date had shown nothing but unyielding advocacy to remain wholly within Westminster. Before the end of the war, the exclusion of Ulster, or at least some of Ulster, was the only option being considered in terms of special treatment for the province. It is difficult to ascertain when exactly the option of providing a Home Rule Parliament for Ulster was contemplated. The peace treaties after the war would certainly have been a factor. The treaties of Versailles, Trinon, and Saint Germain set new borders throughout Central and Southern Europe in the wake of the defeat of Germany, the collapse of Tsarist Russia. And the Austrian, Hungarian and Ottoman empires. The creation of a border in Ireland was unusual as it involved the division of one of the victorious countries. The partition of Ireland was the first major partition in which the British cabinet participated in territory which it had formerly controlled, but it provided a precedent for later partitions, including India and Palestine. The leading nationalist MP left in Westminster, Joseph Devlin, believed the creation of a parliament for Ulster would result in the worst form of partition and, of course, permanent partition. Once they have their own parliament, with all the machinery of government and administration, I'm afraid anything like subsequent union will be impossible. The Ulster unionist leader, Edward Carson, who ideally wished for no home rule anywhere in Ireland, saw some attractions to an Ulster parliament, stating, once it is granted, it cannot be interfered with. You cannot knock Parliaments up and down as you do a ball, And once you have planted them there, you cannot get rid of them. He also stated the desertion of Protestants in the South cuts me to the quick. But the reality was that there was no alternative to the Union unless separation. He did not look upon a Parliament in Ulster as altogether without a ray of sunshine. The Common Council proposed in the Government of Ireland bill was a Council of Ireland, which would be composed of 20 members from each parliament. In the first year, it would look after transport, health, agriculture and similar matters, afterwards working towards unity of the country. It was envisaged that the council would lead to the peaceful evolution of a single parliament for All-Ireland. A degree of unity within the Central Irish administration, headquartered in Dublin, would be maintained through a common Supreme Court, railway policy and many other All-Ireland functions. Postal services were also reserved to be administered by Westminster until they could be transferred to an All-Ireland Assembly, if Irish unity was realised. It was hoped that further common services could be handed over to the Council too. Historian Eamon Phoenix contends that the stated aim of the Council of Ireland to, un- unite to unify Ireland was disingenuous, since the details of the bill were drawn up by a largely Conservative Cabinet in close collaboration with Craig and the Ulster Unionists by offering nationalists far less than they demanded and Ulster Unionists far more than they sought, the Bill was clearly an attempt to solve the Ulster question and not the Irish question. The Irish Times, whilst acknowledging, was acknowledging the thoroughness and ingenuity of the Bill, claimed there was one main objection, a radical objection. There is not the remotest possibility of it becoming effective, particularly in the South. It was like an imposing battleship, whose builders have remembered everything except the fact that their country has no sea. With Sinn Féin in the ascendancy in the south and west of Ireland, the British government knew the bill was unenforceable outside of Ulster. The bill was drafted and amended just to accommodate Ulster unions. A long committee member, Lord Birkenhead, admitted as much when he said, I assent to this proposed bill as affording an ingenious strengthening of our tactical position before the world. I am absolutely satisfied that the Sinn Feiners will refuse it. Otherwise in the present state of Ireland I could not even be a party to making the offer. Initially there were many objections from Ulster unionists. The main problems they had were an admission of home rule, something they had never saw before, reduction of Ulster representation in Westminster to just 12 seats and the abandonment of many Protestants and unionists to the southern jurisdiction. There also was a problem with the area to be included in the Ulster Parliament. Ulster Unionists sought the six counties of Antrim, Armagh, Derry, Down, Fermanagh and Tyrone, and not the nine counties of Ulster, as this was the maximum area they felt they could dominate without being outbred by Catholics. James Craig, who became Northern Ireland's first Prime Minister in 1921, even suggested the establishment of a boundary commission To examine the border area of Northern and Southern Ireland to evade the jurisdiction of the Northern Parliament, extending over the whole of Ulster. Subsequently, he emphatically opposed the odious boundary commission established under the Anglo Irish Treaty of, of December 1921. By that stage, he had his Northern citadel, which he intended to sit on like a rock. The decision of the Ulster Unionist Council was deeply unpopular. Amongst the 70,000 Protestants of counties Donegal, Cavan, and Monaghan, who were sacrificed to the Southern administration. Westminster MP Thomas Moles explained that the three counties had to be abandoned in order to save six counties, and stating, in a sinking ship with lifeboats sufficient for only two thirds of the ship's company, were all to condemn themselves to death because all could not be saved. That was obviously very explosive language considering the Titanic. Had only sunk a, a number of years beforehand. Ulster Unionists outside of the six counties resigned from the Ulster Unionist Council. Many members of the Ulster Women's Unionist Council from Cavan, Donegal, and Monaghan also resigned. And outside of Ulster, Southern Unionists left the Irish Unionist Alliance and formed the Unionist Anti-Partition League in opposition to the impending partition of Ireland, led by William St. John Fremantle Broderick, known as Lord Middleton. Among its membership were people from the largest commercial interests in Dublin, including Lord Ivy, Sir John John Arnott, Andrew Jameson and Marcus Goodbody. The British government only agreed to acceding to the Ulster Unionist wishes to confine the Northern Parliament to six counties in the spring of 1920, just as the bill was being brought before the House of Commons. And here is the Chief Secretary of Ireland, E. Macpherson, introducing the bill to the House in February 1920. The Long Committee's original argument that the nine county proposal will enormously minimise the partition issue. It minimises the division of Ireland on purely religious grounds. The two religions would would be not unevenly balanced in the Parliament of Northern Ireland were exactly the reasons why the Ulster Unionist leaders preferred six counties. They had no intention of minimising partition. By conceding to Unionist demands, the British Government showed its commitment to Irish unity was somewhat flexible. Even though the Ulster Unionist Council endorsed the Government of Ireland bill reluctantly, many Ulster Unionists eventually concluded that the scheme proposed in the Government of Ireland Act would cause the least diminution of their Britishness. Some, such as James Craig's brother, Charles, began to to see the great benefits Ulster Unionists would garner from having their own Parliament. The bill practically gives us everything that we fought for, everything we armed ourselves for. Once it was realised that partition was being attempted, with the creation of two parliaments, many commented on the practical implications for such a massive undertaking. A great deal of confusion surrounded the Government of Ireland bill. The Freemans Journal described it as a complex problem, considering the whole scheme of Irish administration is based on the recognition of Ireland as a national entity with its centre in Dublin. There will be a need to have the local government board, the Department of Agriculture, the Insurance Commission, the Department of Education, the Estates Commissioners and Congested Districts Boards and the Board of Works to be divided between Ulster and the rest of Ireland. The newspaper deridingly named the bill the "Dismemberment of Ireland bill. Here's a punch cartoon of uh, David Lloyd George about to cut Ireland in two. The unionist-leaning Dublin Chamber of Commerce also condemned the bill, saying partition would negatively affect banking by restricting the free flow of business and make it more difficult and expensive to collect debt. Dual government would mean increased taxation. Political differences will be accentuated. The development of the country will be impeded, whilst the creation of a second judiciary, it saw as totally unfavourable. The Church of Ireland Archbishop of Dublin and Provost of Trinity College Dublin, Dr John Henry Bernard, speaking in his capacity as provost, um, insisted that Trinity College Dublin was an Irish institution, that they stood for the whole of Ireland, that their men came from all parts of Ireland, and that, so far as they were concerned, they would resist by all lawful means any partition of Ireland. It has often been cited that the Government of Ireland bill was allowed to pass relatively unchallenged due to the vacuum in national representation at Westminster. There were just seven Irish nationalist MPs remaining in Westminster, six from Ireland and TP O'Connor from Liverpool after the 1918 general election instead of 80. It could be argued that even 80 nationalist MPs would have had made little difference, considering the makeup of the House of Commons after the election. The Conservative Party, Lloyd George's Coalition Liberal Party, and Irish Unionists won over 500 seats, an overwhelming majority. The British Labour Party, with 57 seats, opposed the Government of Ireland bill, with little effect. Former Prime Minister Herbert Asquith and his vastly reduced Liberal Party, of just 36 seats, also opposed the cumbrous, costly, unworkable scheme. His opposition also made no imprint on the final act. It is doubtful that Sinn Féin's pressure would have made a difference either. What little voice the seven nationalist MPs had was further diminished by the Catholic Church's belief that she, they should not participate in the committee stages of the Government of Ireland bill, nor suggest amendments to the bill. The Catholic Church was violently opposed to partition and believed that participating in the framing of the Partition Bill would be seen as a sign of its acceptance. Joe Devlin condemned the bill as conceived in Bedlam, ridiculous and fantastic. He voted against it, but did not in any way contribute to its final shape. Sinn Féin, the leading nationalist movement after the 1918 general election, abstained from Westminster. It formed its own constituent assembly in January 1919, Dahl Ehren. Sinn Féin's policy on partition was almost non-existent from the start. Essentially, it chose to ignore it. Sinn Féin, of course, was not in the House of Commons to debate the Government of Ireland bill. As the bill was making its way through Parliament, the British government was waging a war with Sinn Féin and its military wing, the Irish Volunteers, renamed the IRA. Sinn Féin leaders stuck steadfastly and naively to the view that Ulster would readily come in to an All-Ireland Parliament once Britain was removed from the island. On top of having its own parliament, Sinn Fein also set up a counter state with its own legal system, police force, and local government. That the Government of Ireland Act came into law as Britain was at open war with Sinn Fein, supported by a considerable majority on the island, shows the total air of unreality that surrounded the Act. Sinn Fein built on its 1918 general election mandate by taking control of most of the local authorities in Ireland. After the January and June 1920 local elections. The local elections of 1920 were a major disappointment for Ulster Unionists, which may explain part of the reasoning in insisting on six instead of nine counties to make up Northern Ireland. It was the first time that proportional representation, PR, system of voting was used in Ireland. The introduction of PR was intended to protect the Unionist minority in the South, which had had the added effect of putting Unionist domination. Of Derry and other parts of the North on their threat. In the six county area, Nationalists won control of Derry City, Fermanagh and Tyrone County councils, 10 urban councils, including Armagh, Oma, Enniskillen, Newry and Strabane, and 13 rural councils. Unexpected nationalist and Labour Party victories in places such as Lorrigan, Dungannon, Carrick-Fergus, Larne, Limavady, Cookstown and Lisburn were seen by Nationalists as a rebuff to plans for partition. In Belfast Corporation, unionists went from having fifty-two to thirty-seven members. Labour won thirteen seats, while Sinn Féin and the Nationalist Party won five seats. And the unionists had a great fear of socialism and were concerned at the success of Labour candidates in 1920, who, on top of winning thirteen seats in Belfast, won control of Lurgan and got representation for the first time in Lisburn, Bangor. According to Michael Farrell. It was the first serious challenge to unionist hegemony in the area. The result in Derry City was particularly galling for unionists. Of the 40 seats, unionists won 19. Sinn Féin and the Nationalist Party won 10 seats each, and UC O'Doherty, an independent nationalist, won the final seat. O'Doherty became the first nationalist mayor of the city and the first Catholic to hold a position since Comer Neil was appointed by King James II in 1688 tensions in the city soon boiled over. In April and May, street riots started with skirmishes taking place between the IRA and the revived Ulster Volunteer Force, the UVF. The violence escalated in June, leading to the deaths of 20 people and many more wounded. And here are a number of scenes um, from the area of the violence that occurred then. The violence in the city only abated once 1,500 British troops were drafted into Derry on 23rd of June. The violence moved further east within days. Edward Carson used his 1920 12th of July speech to 25,000 orange men at a field in Finnehy just outside of Belfast to deliver an explosive message. We must proclaim today clearly that come what will and be the consequences what they may, we in Ulster will tolerate no Sinn Féin. No Sinn Féin organisation, no Sinn Féin methods and these are not mere words. I hate words without action. By 1920, the war in the south and west of Ireland had started to reach Ulster. On top of the sectarian violence in Derry, there were many IRA attacks on RAC barracks in Monaghan, Cavan, Armagh, Tyrone and Down. Ambushes on railways in Ulster were becoming almost daily occurrences. In Easter 1920, the IRA Belfast Brigade took part in a countrywide campaign of arson attacks on tax offices to mark the anniversary of the 1916 rising. The increased activity in Ulster led to Carson's claim of a Sinn Féin invasion of Ulster. Whilst unionist fears of Sinn Féin were genuine, the IRA was far weaker both in membership and arms numbers in the North East than anywhere else on the island. Although the UVF had not been active between 1914 and 1919, his members still retained their weapons, substantially more than the IRA had at hand. Days after Carson's 12th of July speech, the RIC Divisional Commissioner Bunster, Gerard Smith, a native of Banbridge in County Down, was killed by the IRA in Cork. Here is the, the scene of his shooting. His death and funeral were the catalysts for the violence that spread to Belfast in late July 1920. After his burial in Banbridge. Local Catholics and their property were viciously attacked, as well as in nearby Drumore and Lisburn, with many Catholics chasing their jobs with their homes burned. The violence didn't spread to Belfast. Returning from the 12th of July holiday on 24th on 21st of July, shipyard workers were greeted to notices, calling for a meeting of all unionist and Protestant workers during the lunch hour outside Workman Clark's yard that day. The meeting called for the expulsion of all non loyal workers from the shipyards. Straight afterwards, a mob went on a rampage, looking for potential victims. Some workers, fearing the worst, left before lunchtime. Some more unfortunate workers were stripped to their undergarments in a search for Catholic emblems such as rosary beads. Many were severely beaten. Others, while swimming to safety across the Musgrave Channel, were struck by shipyard confetti of iron nuts, bolts, ship rivets and pieces of sharp steel. Catholics were soon expelled from many other employers in the city. According to the Catholic Protection Committee, a total of 10,000 men and 1,000 women workers were expelled, about 10% of the nationalist population of Belfast. Protestant socialists, or rotten prods as they were known, were also expelled from their jobs. During the two years of the intense sectarian violence in Belfast, from 1920 to 1922, Over 1,000 Protestants were forced out of their homes too. The unrest travelled from the workplace to the streets of Belfast, resulting in 19 dead and many more wounded or homeless within five days. Retaliation from the Catholic community was not long in coming, provoking yet more retribution from the loyalists. And here are some images of the violence that engulfed Belfast in July 1920. Another wave of violence started after the death of RIC District Inspector Oswald Swansea in Lisburn in August. Swansea was believed to have been involved in the killing of Cork Lord Mayor Thomas McCurtain in March 1920, making him a prime target of the IRA. He was shot dead on the 22nd of August as he left the church service in Lisburn. The loyalist reaction led to the expulsion of almost the entire Lisbon Catholic, Catholic population from their homes. 300 homes were destroyed. Shops were gutted. Catholic families fleeing Lisbon took trains to Belfast or Newry. Many had to walk, walk to Belfast, crossing the Divis Mountain en route. The rioting spread to Belfast, where 22 people were killed in just five days. On 30th of August, the military authorities brought in a curfew from 10.30pm to 5am for the Belfast area. It was the last, with variations in time, until 1924. The sectarian violence that started in July 1920 engulfed the six counties in waves for the next two years. It is estimated that over 550 people were killed violently in the six counties in this period. Approximately 300 of the dead were Catholics, over 170 were Protestants, and over 80 were members of the security forces. Belfast accounted for the vast bulk of the deaths, with just under 460 as well as over 1,100 people wounded. Catholics with one quarter of the population of Belfast suffered over 70% of the deaths in the city. Catholic relief organisations estimated that in Belfast, approximately 11,000 Catholics were driven out of their jobs, as mentioned previously. 23,000 Catholics were forced out of their homes and that about 500 Catholic-owned businesses were destroyed. Those forced from their homes had to seek refuge elsewhere in places such as Dundalk, Dublin, and Glasgow. And here's a young child in, uh, in Marlborough Hall in, uh, in Glasnevin, 1922. The nationalist community considered the period as the Belfast pogrom, where orange mobs and regular and auxiliary members of the police force carried out this campaign of terror. Unionists saw it differently. They saw the threat posed by the IRA, the disorder it had caused in the south and west of Ireland, and were determined to prevent contag- the contagion spreading to the north. They were deeply distrustful of Dublin Castle, and of the mainly Catholic police force, the RIC. They took matters into their own hands and armed themselves. During the summer of violence in Ulster of 1920, unionists looked to take responsibility for the enforcement of public order for the province. As the unrest spread to Ulster, many started to organise into vigilante groups. One for manna vigilance was organised by Sir Basil Brooke, future Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, who felt that the hotheads on the Ulster men's side, might take the matter into their own hands if not organised. He urged Dublin Castle to form an official special constabulary in June. Worried lest loyalists at the local level should pass beyond the Unionist Party's own control, James Craig assigned Colonel Wilfred Spender the task of resurrecting the UVF in order to harness loyalist militant energies. Even though most of the violence was perpetrated against Catholics, Craig warned that the Loyalists were losing faith in the government's determination to protect them and were threatening an immediate recourse to arms which would precipitate a civil war. He attended a ministerial conference in London on 2nd of September 1920, where he used a pretext of looking to keep the extreme Loyalist elements in harness to demand an Ulster Special Constabulary to just serve for the area that would become Northern Ireland. Craig was ultimately looking for the nucleus of the UVF. Who formed an armed special constabulary for the six counties? The Conservative Party leader, Andrew Bonar Law, was unsure and pointed out that if we armed Ulster, public opinions in this country would say the government was taking sides and ceasing, and ceasing to govern impartially. The military commander in chief in Ireland, Neville Macready, and the leading civil servant in Dublin Castle, uh, Under Secretary John Anderson, were also opposed. Macready wrote to Bonar Law saying a remobilised and re-armed UVF would undoubtedly consist entirely of Protestants, and no amount of so-called loyalty is likely to restrain them if the religious question becomes acute. The arming of the Protestant population of Ulster will mean the outbreak of civil war in this country, as distinct from the attempted suppression of rebellion with which we are engaged in at the present. However, helped by the backing of Arthur Balfour and eventually Law, Craig was granted his special constabulary. The British government, fearing people would think they were taking sides, wanted to appear the idea came from themselves. Otherwise, Bonner Law told Lloyd George, it would seem as if we were acting on Ulster Unionist dictation. The special constabulary was meant to be for all of Ireland, but the relevant cabinet minutes betrayed the government's actual motivation. They referred to the creation of the special constabulary in Ireland, with Ireland written in pen over the crossed-out Ulster in TypeScript. The Ulster Special Constabulary came into existence publicly in October 1920, with enrolment starting on 1st of November, the same day that Kevin Barry was executed, the first person to be executed in Ireland since the 1916 Rising. An initial, an initial strength of 3,000 specials was planned. Its members were organised into three classes. The A-class were full-time uniformed police auxiliaries. The B-group uh, were employed on a part-time basis and allowed to keep their weapons at home while the C-class, the largest group, were only to be called out for emergencies, such as invasions. Enrolment was slow at first, with many suspicious that they would be asked to serve in the south or west of Ireland. They had to be reassured they would only have to serve in the six counties. While officially Northern Catholics were allowed to join the force, few did or were actively encouraged to do so. Right from the beginning, Northern National saw the specials as being nothing more and nothing less than the dregs of the Orange Lodges armed and equipped to overawe nationalists and Catholics and with an inclination to invent crimes against nationalists and Catholics. It was unusual for the British government to grant a devolved regional control over a paramilitary police force, strikingly so in 1920, as the entity of Northern Ireland had not even come into existence. And even though the Northern government controlled a special constabulary, the British government financed it with vast sums of money, The formation of the Specials, an exclusively loyalist force, which in the context of the North meant Protestant, helped to shape the character of the new jurisdiction, even before it legally existed. Craig also won the support of the British government in securing the appointment of an assistant honour secretary, Sir Ernest Clarke, with responsibility just for the area that would make up Northern Ireland, and again before the Government of Ireland bill was enacted in December 1920. Clark claimed his appointment was not a preliminary step to partition. In reality, it was, and yet another significant concession to Ulster Unionists. Born in Kent in 1864, Ernest Clark joined the British Civil Service in 1881, where he built up a reputation as a leading taxation expert. This brought him to the Cape Colony government in 1904-05, where he witnessed for the first time the establishment of a home rule territory, the South African Federation. He served as Assistant Under Secretary to Ireland from September 1920 until November 1921, when, with a formal transfer of services, he became Permanent Secretary of the Ministry of Finance and head of the Civil Service of Northern Ireland, the first head of the Civil Service of Northern Ireland, a position he held until 1925. He subsequently served as Governor of Tasmania in Australia from 1933 to 1945. His His work as Assistant Under Secretary was crucial in creating the structures of a functioning government for Northern Ireland when it came into being in the summer of 1921. John Anderson recommended Clark for the post of assistant under-secretary. Anderson asked Clark, I suppose you are not by any chance a Roman Catholic? Clark, initially thinking the question as odd, later realised that had I been a Roman Catholic, I could never have been accepted by the Northern government or been able to carry out my duties, even had I survived to undertake them. Once Clark expressed interest, He was interviewed in London by Hammer Greenwood, the new Chief Secretary for Ireland. Greenwood then brought Clark to James Craig's office in the Admontery, where Craig was a Parliamentary and Financial Secretary. There, Clark was vetted by Craig and two other prominent, prominent Ulster Unionists, Wilfred Spender and Richard Dawson Bates. Clark later revealed, I afterwards found that really I was on show to Craig and possibly also to Spender and Bates. At the meeting, Clark recalled the Ulster Unionists were full of grievances, and painted a picture of the deathly peril which threatened all loyalists. He later discovered by experience how necessary it has always been to emphasise, even to exaggerate, the conditions in Ireland in order to arrest the attention of the ordinary Englishman. As the meeting was ending, Craig towered over Clark and said, Now you are coming to Ulster, you must write one word across your, your heart, tapping out with his finger on Clark's chest. U L S T E R Ulster. Initially, Clark experienced a degree of distrust, even hostility from some loyalists. Unionists were unhappy of Clark's subordination to Dublin Castle, as they believed many civil servants in Dublin Castle were nationalist, even Sinn Fein sympathisers. They wanted Clark to have direct communication to Chief Secretary Greenwood with no possibility of leakage. Greenwood responded that Clark can send me information he can withhold from the King, the Pope and James McMahon. McMahon, seen here with John Anderson, was a Catholic born in Belfast who grew up in Armagh and was like Anderson, an undersecretary in Dublin Castle. Unions believed McMahon was a national sympathiser and he came in for a particular ire from them. Clark remained answerable to Dublin Castle, but as time went on, he became more and more independent of Dublin. He knew what was expected of him, and he soon dispelled unionist apprehension. From the start, he worked consistently and uncompromisingly for the interests of the future Northern Ireland government. Northern Ireland was presented with a workable administration from the very moment it came into being, thanks largely to his efforts. He, supported by a small team of no more than 20, worked tirelessly from his appointment in September 1920 to set up the machinery of a new jurisdiction, with very little to work with, as he testified. I found myself setting out to form a new administration armed only with a table, a chair and an act of parliament. Clark himself worked 16 hours a day, seven days a week to make sure Northern Ireland had a functioning government from its establishment. He claimed, I will do my best to fulfil my role as John the Baptist. As far as can be done with a small staff at my disposal, get together information and prepare it away. He established a framework for seven new government departments organized buildings for those departments as well as their furniture and office equipment, recruited personnel for the new civil service, attempted to source accommodation for the new civil service and secured instructions, guidelines and templates from different departments in London and Dublin on how to run the department. He was in constant communication with Craig in the lead up to the formation of Northern Ireland, ensuring a functioning jurisdiction would be operational from day one. Craig was directly involved in determining the appropriate number and functions of the future Northern departments. Clark sent a memo to Craig on the recruitment recommendations for the Northern Ireland Civil Service, including the instructions that no preference be given to anyone based on a religious belief and competition for places should be open to women. He warned against adopting an official policy that would disadvantage Catholics in securing government employment as religious discrimination was illegal under the Government of Ireland Act. Such advice from Clark was barely heeded. Although Clark uh, remains a relatively unknown figure, the crucial role he played in making Northern Ireland reality should not be ignored. His work in creating government departments and recruiting a new civil service, at a time when the political environment in Ireland was extremely volatile, provided structures and a semblance of stability to the new political entity of Northern Ireland, vital at a time when its survival was most at threat. It was for this reason that Basil Brook described Clark as midwife to the new province of Ulster. 1920 also saw Sinn Féin making one of its first decisions directly relating to the north. Dahl Ehrn started a boycott of goods from Belfast and a withdrawal of funds from Belfast-based banks. In response to the expulsions of Catholic workers from Belfast shipyards and elsewhere, In reality, the boycott soon extended to other businesses, and farming, and beyond Belfast too. Many saw it as an anti-partitionist move, a way to show that the North could not survive without the rest of Ireland. In reality, the boycott increased the likelihood of partition. Whilst its economic effects to hamper trade in Belfast met with mixed results, the boycott's aim to unify Ireland was an unmitigated disaster. It resulted in further psychological and physical divisions between North and South some that had never existed before. It was in this atmosphere, in violence and boycotts, that the Government of Ireland Bill became an act on the 23rd of December 1920. In assenting to the act, King George V expressed hope that the act, the fruit of more than 30 years of ceaseless controversy, will finally bring about unity and friendship between all the peoples of my kingdom. Based on the events and actions of 1920, this was a wildly optimistic reading of the environment. In Ireland, and of the likely fallout from its impending partition. So that concludes my talk. So, if you want to find more about uh, this talk, you can uh, avail of my book, *Part of the Border*, which which a lot of this is discussed in detail. Thanks for your time.
0: Well, thank you very much, uh, Cormac. That was a really uh, fascinating overview of uh, what is uh, well one of the pivotal periods in, in the life of our country, and still affecting, of course, the everyday life of, of people uh, all over this Ireland, indeed. Uh, further abroad but well, we have uh, questions uh, let's see let's see how we get on so okay. uh, well, actually the first is a comment Eileen says uh, read the photo shown my granduncle was involved in the attack oh, in barracks. Yeah. Yeah. barracks so uh, yeah. that, that, that's interesting again the, the, the real life connections so next question from Peter could it not be said that the roots of partition in Ireland was the outcome of the failed 1798 rebellion especially among the northern Presbyterians
1: well, I think obviously
0: the, the roots of partition you could argue go back, back
1: to the you know, Ulster plantation in the early sixteen hundreds, you know, where, where uh, um you know that that, that major divide of, of a huge a huge section of, of the uh population of the north east were, were uh um were, were seen as different and from a different tradition. And uh I said that that certainly is the roots. But a lot happened though in uh obviously seventeen ninety eight was was uh, it was crucial in in its defeat. Um and there were obviously many Presbyterians and people from Church of Ireland who uh, who supported uh, Irish independence from Britain. Um, but so much happened in the century afterwards, and and even so much happened between 1911 1921. and um, there was no this, 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 there was no uh, inevitable solution about it. And that's what I would argue. I, I don't believe there's such, uh, such a thing as two nations, and as you know, um, that that the Protestants of the Northeast were always separate to the rest of Ireland. Um, there's there so many ambiguities. There's so many different other groupings, like what about uh, Southern Protestants? What about Northern Catholics? You know, there's, it, it, it's, it's too easy and and a lot more complex um, to just have that duality of uh, uh, Northern Protestants against, uh, um, against Southern Catholics, basically. So I, I think it's
0: way more complicated than that. Okay, thank you. Uh, Dan says, thank you, Cormac. Uh, what role do the heads of the religious organisations play in either trying to suppress violence or to the instigation of violence between the religious factions? So, so I don't hear much about where the heads of each religion stood.
1: Well, the, uh, I, 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 what, what really, I, I don't know if you can say they were responsible for causing violence. Um, they, like the, the, the main religions, certainly in some ways, I, I suppose, would have uh, contributed um, to it. Um, I, I know the, the Catholic um, 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 hierarchy were very involved in, in getting help for Catholics. And even, even uh, the propaganda campaign of showing what was being done to Catholics in Belfast and then as a response, the Ulster Unionist leadership, with the help of uh, various different uh, um, um, church members from, from the different Protestant religions, they also had their own propaganda campaign saying, actually, it was actually being done them by the IRA and Sinn Féin. So um, they, they certainly, um, like the, the, the Catholic Church did not engage with the North. They, they believed in the campaign of uh, ignoring it, Austrianizing it, um, pretending it didn't exist. And the, the Protestant churches didn't do anything really to help... Uh, um, the you know, uh, what was done being done to the Catholics. So they, you know, they, they in many ways they they, uh, they helped the divide increase, increase further. So without being directly involved in actually any of the violence themselves, they, they definitely didn't help in alleviate the uh, the temperament.
0: Okay, uh, Michelle says, how is the influx of Belfast quote refugees perceived by Dubliners? Were they welcomed, or was there any resistance? Did they generally remain in Dublin or move on or even back to Belfast? Well, A lot of them eventually did move back to Belfast. If
1: you look at the... Um, and we're still obviously waiting for the 1926 uh, census results. That's, that's one of the best indicators, even though so much happened between the, the last census of 1911, 1926 with the First World War, the, the rising partition of Ireland. So we're never going to know exactly why people left or stayed in the place. But the, the Catholic population of Belfast ha, ha, did remain pretty stable even after... Um, you know, consider amount did uh temporarily uh, um, go elsewhere. Um, Dublin is very interesting, um, particularly, um, the, the worst um part of the violence was the early part of 1922, first six months of 1922, before the outbreak of, of the civil war in the south. And the uh, it, it actually became a bit of a political football between the anti treaty and pro treaty side, the anti treaty side started taking refugees. So they used to, they took over a number of different uh, um, Orange Halls, the YMCA, other buildings in Dublin and actually used them as a, as a, um, you know, housing for refugees. And the, the provision government, the the pro-treaty side had to respond and they had to start housing refugees. But, but soon after they, they, they they actually wanted them to leave, wanted them to, 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 they they couldn't afford the refugees. They, they certainly looked after uh, women and children, but they, the, the men were left on their own a lot of times and they had no option but to to, to go elsewhere.
0: Cormac, when one considers that the United Irishmen, this happens back, I think, the previous comment in question, were predominantly the United Irishmen were probably predominantly Protestant. What do you think happened to cause the freedom of Ireland to become a nationalist one? Therefore predominantly Catholic?
1: Well, as I said, so much happened in the uh, in the, in the period, like the, the century afterwards. Um I mean, obviously the, the Catholic Church and and even Catholics became more prominent in terms of education in uh, in their in uh, um, their political outlook. Um, you know, look, I think I think a lot happened. You know, in, in in that that century afterwards, and even even in the 20th century afterwards, that that uh, um, you know, Protestantism became uh, like, and Protestantism became more confined to the Northeast as well. You know, it, uh, it definitely, and even the, the Presbyterian element um, became more uh, formidable in its control of uh, of Unionism. Um, so look, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons why um it it's it's it, it, uh, you know moved from what happened in 1998 up to what happened in 1921. Um, but it's like it, it is complicated and it's it's, it's, it's I, I just hate this idea that oh this is a catholic versus protestant thing and that uh you know there's there's so many different ambiguities there's so many and even within Ulster unionism 1912 there was just was, wasn't this this uh just unanimous decision we're all going to be uh, um, we're all against home rule and we're all going to violently oppose it. There was a lot of moderation that was, wasn't listened to within Ulsterism that uh, that existed as well. And the same with, and there's actually a lot, a lot less um, difference between, uh, you know, Irish nationalist parties, uh, the Irish parliamentary party's approach to, to Ulster and Sinn Féin's ultimate approach to Ulster. Uh, a lot of what Sinn Féin said was rhetoric. A lot of what Ulster Union said was rhetoric. But they did eventually talk uh, as had happened before with a uh, with the Irish Parliamentary Party. So it's just, it's just too ambiguous to say because of 1798 or because of 1886 or because of 1912, this is a whole grouping and this is their, their decision to, uh, um, you know, to be for or against partition or uh, dividing the, the country.
0: Uh, thank you. Cormac, pre-treaty, do you happen to know what civil servant service departments were located in Dublin? Has anything been written about this? Well, yeah, there's a... Like, well,
1: most civil service departments were based in, in Dublin. Um, and that was that was a huge problem for Belfast, and that they had no uh, departments. They had to create everything from scratch, and uh, and the, a lot of the, um, the actually the, the, the best books I would say were Mark McGuire has a book on uh, civil service, and uh, John McColgan That's from the early eighties. Really good book on the, the British administration, which, which it was um, before the treaty. Um, and there's a lot of opposition within civil service and within the unions of the civil service of of having to move to Belfast. So. A lot of the people that were asked to move uh, stalled and the provision Government government um, stalled, you know, getting personnel to move to different departments of Belfast and even the files. Like, some files weren't given over to the North on twenty three, which, which uh, really frustrated the,
0: the Unionists and the British government. Bureaucracy can be a weapon too. <laughs> uh, Patrick says, uh, what concessions and compromises do you believe could be made to the Ulster Protestant and Unionist community to make United Ireland work? Big question.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not sure if I uh, um well I, I think I think we obviously have to compromise on on like symbols are really important, you know. I, I my a lot of my background is sport history and the whole symbolism of flags and emblems and uh, um uh you know anthems. So I, I think there certainly would need to be accommodation there. Um obviously the former government that would be um you know would be, be looked at, you know, like um would there would also union's representation. Like if, if there was a United Ireland Ireland, for example, like you'd you'd have a big block of people from a, a certain tradition who would have who could have enormous sway in, in, in a in, in an All Ireland uh, parliament and uh you know it could it could have the former government. So you know there's it, depending on the form of government as well you'd have I think I think I will say one thing though about that the Southern leadership say of uh, um of recent times, you know, it's always just uh, almost a shame to say I want a United Ireland like it's a like it, that you know, if you're a nationalist, I, I don't see why should it be a shame. Why should a, a, a southern politician say they don't want United Ireland like that? You should be proud of that. You should say I want us to be united. Like no unionist ever says they're they're ashamed to be a unionist. You know why should nationalists be ashamed to be nationalists and say they want United Ireland? That's something they're actively looking for. They're, I wish people would be more upfront about that. Like yeah, we are looking for a United Ireland. and we're, we're not going, and, and that should. I don't see how that detracts or in some way discentifies unionists. You know that surely. Um, most southern politicians would want the, the Ireland island united. So I think I, I wish people were more fortified about their actual beliefs on the United Ireland than, than they currently are.
0: Okay, thank you. Angus says, uh, could you tell us more about the illustration sketches of the Belfast riots of nineteen twenty? I think that you, you showed some of those. Yeah, I
1: actually I discovered a lot of them recently with uh, um, the Illustrated London News. Um, it's uh, I don't know if you, if you can get uh, access to it or the, the some of the quality of the photos, and some I haven't seen before, are absolutely wonderful. I mean, they really are. Um, um, you know, they're, they're you know, real life. Right, right. Within a week or two after the events as they happened, and, and they have uh, um, those photos. Now, obviously, they're, they're very politically biased, they're very uh, pro-British and anti- Sinn Fein. Um, but there are some some wonderful images all that they, they do have. Thank you,
0: uh, Catherine says. Can you elaborate on how the three now republic counties of Ulster? Yeah. They did not become part of Northern Ireland. Yes. Yeah, so so, they not become six, I suppose, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, uh,
1: now, now, before the Government of Ireland uh, bill was, was mooted in the late 1919, um, most people felt that, um, you know, like, there's going to have to be some accommodation with uh, Ulster or parts of Ulster. And the general consensus was, look, it could have been four counties, could be five counties, six counties, um and and generally, like I say, before the war, people talking about the, the temporary or permanent exclusion of six counties um from from, uh, uh, from the home rule parliament. Now now the, the plan was for those six counties uh to be still in Westminster, not, not to have their own parliament, but to actually remain fully within Westminster. Um, so so the the this kind of came out of the blue that um in, in 1919 when it was announced that actually, you know, this Ulster Parliament, if you're gonna have a parliament, it should be nine counties. Because that actually would give a better chance of ultimate unity. So publicly, the British government saying we want, an, uh, you, you know, Ireland to be united for Irishmen to solve their. We want to get out of Ireland. We want, uh, you know, the, the both southern and northern parliament have this really strong council of Ireland that, uh, you know, would, would you know work together on all the things and ultimately would convene to convene in all our parliament. And the best way of that working for United Ireland was having nine counties because you'd almost have half and half Protestants and Catholics. Um, and uh, that was their their public reasoning, but James Craig and, uh, and, and other Ulster Unionist leaders did not want that. They wanted a secure Protestant majority um, that uh, you know was was impenetrable, and that's why they insisted on six counties. Um, and as I said, even that and this is very little is known about this, but James Craig actually proposed a boundary commission because there, after the, the First World War, there were a lot of boundary commissions and other jurisdictions that were being divided, he suggested, look, let's have a boundary commission to show. Where the you know the majority Protestant areas are, the majority counties area are, and uh, that that would be one way of solving it. So, so but eventually, and uh, it, it didn't take much convincing. The British government conceded um, to the six um, the, the the six counties, and the reason why was because they they knew that the only people who, who were going to work this bill were Ulster Unionists, because uh, like the South were never going to accept it. They were always going to ignore it. So the only way this bill could become effective was if they had U- Ulster Unionists buy in. And they weren't going to get all students buy-in with nine counties, so they they, they uh, went back to six counties.
0: Thank you. Uh, Joe O'Donnell asks, uh, says, great talk. Can you elaborate a little more on Oswald Swansea's involvement in atrocities in Cork, uh, the death of Terence McSweeney?
1: Not, not Terence McSweeney, uh, uh, Thomas McSweeney. Um, um no I, I can not because there was just commission on like there was no uh, there was no solid proof one way or the other like there was actually commission after uh, you know an inquiry into McCartan's death and uh, and they they actually put the blame for his death on Lloyd George the whole British government, and they actually specifically mentioned uh, RIC divisional uh, uh, um, inspector uh, um, Oswald Swansea. and so he became a target after that um, and he was actually um, the gun he was shot with was actually uh, believed to be a McCartan's gun, um, in, in, in August, and uh, I, in 2020. Um, so yeah, so that's, you know, like, like whether, like he, like he claimed he didn't have any involvement. Like there's no necessarily proof that he himself directly ordered the, the hit, but he was a division inspector and it was RIC, you know, it wasn't a, um, black and tans or auxiliaries. Um, it was an RIC hit on, uh, on the McCartan. And, uh, yeah, and he,
0: he took a ultimate responsibility. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Paul asks a question. He says, "Cormac, in your view, was partition always going to be by county rather than by electoral electoral district? How did the unionists deal with a strongly nationalist Tyrone and a majority nationalist matter? Well, um, no, it wasn't. Like there was
1: a number of options looked at in uh, pretty you know, uh, during the 1912, 1914 kind of uh, um, um, era when home rule was first, uh, it became a really big hot hot, hot uh, political topic. And the whole Ulster element of home rule became a, such a big factor that you had um, um, Augustine Burrell, who was the chief secretary, and his his uh, team in Dublin Castle. They started looking at loads of options, county options, poor law unions, you know, different electoral wards, and the, and they, they kind of had a uh, you know this mixed mesh up of kind of the, the equivalents of about four or five counties that they thought would have been would have made the uh, would have made uh, more sense, but then. Because if so much was run on a county basis, like the local uh, governments were on uh, county basis, it became the most convenient. And but when it comes to Tyrone and Fermanagh, they always became the uh, the, the biggest, probably the, the biggest moral um, dilemma that uh, the British government needed. Also, even those unions had was you, you could you could argue that you know four counties were solidly uh, uh, you know Protestant, even though they had they had very big uh, all counties, including Antrim and Down, had. You know, huge, uh, huge uh, tracks of Catholic areas as well. But you could say, look, they are solidly Protestant. But Tyrone and, and Fermanagh were were always, uh, um, you know, about fifty six, you know, fifty five, fifty six, seven percent Catholic, um, and that was a real dilemma. You know, they couldn't, they couldn't really, uh, um, you know, say this was justified, or they, they couldn't say that this is what the people wanted because it was very clear that the Tyrone and Fermanagh were a problem. And they, they, they well, what they did after the, uh, Northern Ireland came into being was they got rid of PR. They gerrymandered a lot of uh, the different wards and councils, so the representation of, of nationalist Catholics was greatly diminished in in uh, Fermanagh and Tyrone. Um, and it was partly because, like Fermanagh and Tyrone, when when when, when uh, nationalists took over those county councils, they uh, they boycotted uh, the Northern uh, government and uh, they, 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 they they
0: felt they were answerable to uh, to the Dail, uh, and that was obviously hugely uh, a big problem for unions. Okay, thank you. Uh, there's another question there about the Boundary Commission on the three counties, but I think you think you've probably covered that uh, already. Uh, how the six counties became a six, as it were. Uh, as well, it was, yeah, uh, if you want to make the Boundary Commission,
1: you know that, that was uh, a. That, that was that's for a different time because that was this this talk was in 1920, but the, the Boundary Commission decision of of the Anglo-Irish Treaty was a real real spectacular on goal by Sinn Féin, in my opinion, in that they th- there's nothing wrong in getting a boundary commission that that's on the face of it sounds like a good idea but it was too ambiguous you know it was a boundary commission was set up that the the you know a, a border would be determined based on population um economic and geographic means so like, what does that mean you know and, and which is more important that was never laid out um no plebiscite was asked for no timeline was asked for um and, and nationalists really did believe you know they did believe that all of fermant and tyrone was come back to them uh, so it was you know south down south Armagh Derry, and they just hadn't thought the truth. You know they didn't, uh, uh, and plus it was going to, it was a three per- person commission with one from the Free State one from Northern Ireland one from the British government. So it was, it was two to one uh, anyway. So they, they they didn't think that true, um, and and that's the reason why ultimately the the, the current uh, border remains as it was as it did from the very start.
0: Uh, there's a sort of a comment from Peter, I think it's a comment more of the like question, but uh, in time, at the time at the time of the treaty, Dahl debate it was more concerned over the oath of loyalty than over Yeah, absolutely yeah, absolutely. Was, but, but uh, it's not, that's not necessarily that they didn't care about the North, it was
1: that they, ta- they both sides thought they had a good deal on the North with the Boundary Commission, like, the, like if you look at De Valera's document number two, there's, there's no um, change to the, the Article 12 of the treaty, which uh, called for a Boundary Commission. All nationals were widely uh, optimistic on what this boundary commission was going to do, and that's the primary reason why it didn't take up as much uh, um, debate in the in the uh, post treaty. Thank
0: you, uh, Paul. Asked well, me, you, you did mention the, the boycott uh, earlier on. Was there a dependency of northern industry on southern banking?
1: Uh, well, the northern banks is, did suffer. Um, um, like some industries, like and distribution, suffered uh, a bit. But the three main industries of the North—shipbuilding uh, and linen and agriculture their their markets were international markets. So, so uh, it was like uh, I think uh, Ernest Bloy, who was opposed. Ernest Bloy was actually a Northern Protestant. He was opposed to the boycott from the very start, as was Countess Markwick. And he said, you know, the uh, the boycott will do as much damage to uh, to shipbuilding in Belfast as a, a summer breeze will do to Cave Hill in Belfast. You know, so it's a. Um, like some like, of so the banks definitely were affected. Um, like uh, I think it was the Belfast Bank; they closed all their branches after uh, um, two, three years of, of after the boycott. Um, um, yes, yeah, so, you know they, they were affected, but but overall, it yet trade was diminished. Like Ulster unions didn't want it either, and there was pressure from certain groups um, to to uh, have it lifted. Um, but it, it it didn't have as big an economic fact or impact as a lot of people thought it would do. And also it did more damage in terms of uh, psychological partition, it increased between uh, between North and South.
0: Thank you. Look, we're just time for one more question. Uh, We've gone international now. I wonder if Cormac might comment on what lessons of the previous British partition of Bengal, India in 1905, largely around religious grounds, were applied to partition in Ireland?
1: I, I I don't know much about the actual partition of Bengal in in 1905, and um, I, I obviously the the overall Indian partition of uh, of uh, 1947 48. You know, they took a lot of lessons. They they consider the Irish partition very successful, so they they uh, try to use the same methods for uh, um and for the both Palestinian one and the Indian one, um, and and we, we know the consequences of, of, of those decisions. Um. But there's, there's a whole, I think there's, there's, there's a few, a lot of studies being done on, on that, this concept of partition. And, uh, and the one I kind of would, or um, one theory, I, I definitely would, uh, would, would stick to is that most partitions that say either the British Empire or the French Empire, or whatever empire, they didn't do it in the benefit of the minorities, they didn't do it the benefit of, say, of stop fighting you know, inter-community uh, 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 factions. It was actually to, to retain their power. But in, in, to, in order to retain their power, they had to recognise some form of uh, of a dominion and um, home rule, you know, to some some form of a of self determination from different uh, ethnic uh, um, groups, and it was it was kind of a way of uh, staving off their decline to to partition countries to you know kind of put a rubber stamp on a, on a or I lastly band on a, on a problem, and uh, and 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 that way they they felt they could retain their their empires and their power, so. Um, uh, I think, and that, I think the
0: Irish partition solution come in, comes into that category as well. Thank you, uh, Cormac. Well, folks, we've had forty-four questions. <laughs> we've managed to get through a fair number of them. Well, thank everybody for getting involved, and I'm sorry we can't get to, to any more.
1: If you uh, if you want to find out more, here's my book, Birth to Border. So it's uh, available on all online platforms
0: and in most good bookshops. Uh, some bad ones as well, as we, we always say. Yes, as Cormac's uh, book, I was about to say, is available from our regular festival bookshop partners, the Twitter bookshop.com. Uh, uh, also, other bookshops, as Cormac says, and you'll possibly be able to borrow it from your local library if you check out the, the, the catalogue, uh, Libraries.ie. And you can keep up with Cormac's work as a Dublin City Council historian residence on Twitter, where he is uh, Twitter at more. Uh, I want to thank uh, all of you on behalf of Dublin City Council and Dublin City Libraries. Thank you all very much for watching. Well, I thank Cormac for giving you all of his expertise and very uh, interesting talk. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on DublinFestivalOfHistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest.